Thank you, Rich, for reading that. Let's just go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask Him to lead us through our time together here. Lord, we come through the week that we've had, and we're thankful for Your presence now with us. Uh, Your presence has been an encouragement. Your presence has been a strength. Your presence has been a rock for us during the week. And we ask that you would continue to lead us into this upcoming week. And now as we're gathered around your word, we're asking that you would meet us where we are once again, that you would take your word, that you would encourage us and build us up this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most difficult challenges, if not the most difficult challenge in life, uh, is relationships. If you just think about how much better life would be if hard, broken relationships did not exist, you might think about how much time would you have saved in kind of that thinking pattern where you feel like you're in a prison and you just can't get out of your thoughts over what has happened? How much extra sleep would you have been able to have? How much different would your own health, maybe even your medicine cabinet be, if hard, broken relationships did not exist? But welcome to the world. That's where we live. We have aspirations and hopes, and at times we have joy and gladness, but oftentimes there is very deep sadness and regret because of relationships. I want to read a quote from a book by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. It's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And they write in this, they say, relationships are inescapable and powerfully influential. The difficulty is that sin and grace coexist in all of them. Sin gets in the way of what grace can do, while grace covers what sin causes. Our relationships vividly display this dynamic mixture of gold and dross, the impurities that come up. And I think at times, many... Uh, Many of us would say these relationships are more characterized by the dross than by the gold. Um, You see this in the Bible. The Bible story begins with God creating Adam and Eve, and all was good. At the end of chapter 2, you see this picture of Adam and Eve naked and not ashamed with one another. Chapter 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, they sin, they commit selfish acts, and they are experiencing shame. By the time we get to the fourth chapter, just the fourth chapter of the Bible, we have our first murder between Cain and Abel. By the end of the fourth chapter, we have polygamy. We have a man named Lamech who's committing more murder. The rest of the Old Testament shows Relationship after relationship just falling apart, characterized by selfishness, greed, lies, sexual immorality, and all kinds of war. You move to Exodus. Here comes the law. And the law, we could break down to two general sections. One, covering our relationship with God, and the other section, covering our relationship with man. 
we need boundaries for our relationships. And so the law says, here is how you can carry out a relationship. You just look at the Ten Commandments in the second half. The last six are all about, hey, here is how you're supposed to relate to your fellow man. However, the law doesn't give us power in those relationships. The law is a judge. The law shows us this is what's right to do in a relationship. This is what's wrong to do in a relationship. And the law is hovering over top of us. And every time we sin, we feel the law coming down saying that was a lie. That was jealousy. That was envy. That was selfishness. That was sin. And so while the law is there, we're all stepping back and we're saying, I get it. I fail. I'm not who I should be when it comes to relationships. And I hope that we're all here this morning in humility, recognizing if we think that in our own strength, we're batting a thousand when it comes to relationships, um, snap out of it, you know? Wake up. If you're here thinking you are batting a thousand, you probably need this the most because I don't mean this in a harsh way, but your pride has blinded you. We all need strength outside of ourselves to help us inside of relationships. We need strength to empower us. We need strength to enable us with our fellow man in such a way that these relationships would please God. And the good news is, that's where we come to in Galatians 5. Right at the end of Galatians, the middle of chapter 5, all the way down to the middle of chapter 6, the Apostle Paul unpacks this section on relationships. So it starts in chapter 5, verse 13, if you have your Bible open there. He says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So here's the command, through love, serve one another. And then for the rest of chapter 5, down to the middle of chapter 6, you can see he kind of wraps up this section on relationships where he says in verse 10, so then, or in conclusion, in light of everything that we've talked about, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here's the section on relationships. And I've just shared with you, the law over here tells us, here's how relationships ought to carry out. We look at ourselves in the mirror of the law, and we see sin and failure. So is there any hope? Is there any power? Is there any enabling? We've been studying the book of Galatians, and I'm going to answer that question in just a minute. We've been studying the book of Galatians. If you've been with us for the past several months, you remember that the first two-thirds of this book are about the truth of the gospel, that the gospel is about faith in Jesus alone. The way for forgiveness of sins is not through Jesus and works. The Apostle Paul has just been unpacking argument after argument that faith in Jesus alone is what saves you. So if you're a non-Christian here, I just want you to know that here's what the Bible says. You can have complete forgiveness of sins simply by faith in Jesus alone, not Jesus and works. And that's what Paul has been unpacking for, for our good and for our understanding. 
Now all of a sudden, Paul moves into chapter 5 and 6, and he starts talking about relationships. What is the correlation between the first two-thirds of this book that talk about Jesus and our faith in him and relationships? It feels as though he's taking a hard right turn. But that's not the case. What Paul is doing is he is showing us that in salvation, part of our new spiritual lives, we receive a very special gift. And that very special gift is the Spirit of God and one very important ministry that the Spirit of God can do is help you in relationships. In other words, the gospel of faith in Jesus alone, God is saying, okay, here's the life that you're now starting to live. It's going to be lived with a focus on Jesus, but you're going to be going side by side with brothers and sisters in Christ. And guess what? There's friction there. There's bumps that happened. There are challenges, and I want you to know that this life in the gospel going forward can be lived out with the Spirit in you. So for each one of us this morning, going back to the beginning of this long introduction, wherever you're at in your relationships, I want you to walk away from here this morning knowing there is biblical hope for your relationships. There is biblical hope for your relationships. I've got three points for the sermon this morning that prop up that idea of biblical hope. And the first one is simply the person of the Spirit. The person of the Spirit. The person of the Spirit gives us hope. And we talked about this last week, but I'm going to review and have some overlap with last week again. Who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? Four truths about the Spirit for us this week. Number one, review from last week, the Spirit is God. The Spirit is God. We see this throughout Scripture. I'm just going to give you a quick proof text. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Ananias comes into uh, the apostles, and he is living out a lie. And Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on to say, you have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. Okay, the Spirit being God. Okay. Truth number two about the Spirit is that the Spirit led Jesus. The Spirit led Jesus. You see this throughout the Gospels, but specifically I just want to see you, uh, for you to see in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus appeals to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and Jesus says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus was saying the Spirit is upon him. It was the Spirit who came upon him at baptism. It was the Spirit who led him out into the wilderness. It's the Spirit who leads him through his ministry. Truth number three, that same Spirit indwells Christians. That same Spirit who was leading Jesus indwells Christians. And this is what Jesus was encouraging his disciples with in John chapter 14. Jesus said to his disciples, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, 
for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Romans chapter 8, the same spirit who led Jesus, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, I mean, just, just grasp that truth, Christian, for just a moment. The spirit who led and indwelt Jesus throughout his ministry, here's the promise. Right now, he is indwelling you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who indwells us or who dwells within us, Paul said to Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So he was going to carry on this work because the Spirit, on the basis that the Spirit indwelled him. This has been a thread throughout Paul's argument, if you will, if I can use that in a kind way throughout the book of Galatians, that the Spirit is going to be given to Christians. Back in chapter 3, Paul said this, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Okay, so just looking at church history, in Acts chapter 2, it was the Spirit who came in Acts chapter 2 and began a very new ministry among believers where he is indwelling us. Now, truth number four, what is the ministry of the Spirit to you? Okay, the Spirit is God. The Spirit led Jesus. The Spirit dwells in you. And truth number four, the Spirit empowers you. The Spirit empowers you. So three texts for us. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So God wants you to know just this morning from this text that when it comes to the Christian life, the same spirit who led Jesus is the same spirit who indwells you and he gives you strength and power in your inner being. And that strength and power in your inner being in Galatians 5, as we'll see here in just a moment, The Spirit has been given to you, especially for the context or for the purpose of living out your faith in relationships, for following Christ. Now, what is this fruit of the Spirit that he produces? What is this power? If the power, if the Spirit is indwelling us, what is this going to look like in our lives? What do we have, practically speaking, the capability of seeing or seeing produced in our lives. This is where Paul moves into the fruits of the Spirit. And what I'm going to do here, there are nine fruits of the Spirit. And so we're going to list them. We're going to define them. And I want to encourage you because in so many of these fruits, 
we can see them throughout our congregation. And I think sometimes it's good for us just to open up our eyes and see, ah, that's not just that person. That's the Spirit of God at work in that person or in the life of our church. Okay? Then let's take those fruits and say, okay, this is what God is willing to produce in my life if I'm living by the Spirit. Okay, so let's go through point number two, the fruit of the spirits. The fruit of the Spirit, not the spirits. One Spirit. All right, first, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. What do we mean by love? We simply mean the giving of oneself for others so that they are encouraged and strengthened. Jesus said in John 13, verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And so you see this very clearly in Jesus' life. This was in John chapter 13, where he took his 12 disciples in that upper room, had them sit down in chairs, and he took a basin of water and a rag and went around the room as a servant and just washed their feet. And at the end of that, he says, this is how you can love others, by serving them, encouraging them. Love is the air that ought to be the overarching characteristic of Christian community. It's the fulfillment of all of the laws, what the Bible tells us. It's the manner in which a husband is to act towards his wife, according to Ephesians 5. It's the commandment that regulates how we act towards those whom God has put next to us, our neighbor. And it's even the commandment that we are supposed to live out toward our enemies, as we reviewed last week. Jesus says that this is the characteristic that ought to be present among believers. Have we seen love in the air here? It's been encouraging for our pastoral team to see you all respond to the death of Carol and Larry this past week, wanting to give of yourselves, wanting to be an encouragement. That's been the fruit of God's Spirit just being manifested in our midst. I've received phone calls from folks saying, how can we help? What can we do? And not just with Jan and Phil, but also I think about recently, several of you have reached out and have said, man, how can we reach out to our shut-ins? You've asked for addresses. You've asked for phone numbers, wondering how can we get in and visit those who can't be with us week in and week out? You've wanted to strengthen and encourage brothers and sisters in the church. That's love. Second characteristic, second fruit is joy. What is joy? Joy is a settled state of mind that arises from a sense of God's love for us. A settled state of mind that arises from a sense of God's love for us. So you can think about difficult trials in life. Jesus is going through one of those difficult trials when he's on the cross, and yet he has this quiet, deep current of joy underneath of everything because it's settled in his mind that God loves him, his Father loves him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This joy is a deep treasure because even when the circumstances are difficult and perhaps even emotional, the Christian knows that God is at work in and through him or her. I recently saw this 
in Todd and Carla Witter's life. They were mourning the loss of some of their relatives and seeing their daughter and son-in-law go through just the loss of in-laws or parents. And it was a tragic event that happened, yet I could see Carla in our staff meeting with this undercurrent of deep settledness. God is in control. Her joy wasn't lost, even though the trial was there. We have love, we have joy, we also have peace. What's peace? Peace can be defined as harmonious and loving relationships with other believers. That is the natural outcome of the peace that we have with God. Romans chapter 14, verses 17 and 19 say this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, okay? but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So peace with one another is an outcome that we are to pursue. This peace does not in, consist of agreement on everything, but it's rather a harmony and a love that transcends disagreements that go underneath. How have I seen this recently in our congregation? I was at a neighbor's house last week, sat down, and the neighbor asked, hey, how did your church do going through COVID? Well, we know that COVID pretty much blew up everybody. But I was able to tell this person, hey, a few families left our church, but the way that our congregation by and large responded and put differences aside and pursued peace, it was wonderful. That's a demonstration of the Spirit leading us, not our own personal bents on things. Number four, patience. What's patience? The behavior of enduring difficult situations. The behavior of enduring difficult situations without losing one's calmness. The behavior of enduring difficult situations without losing one's calmness. It's the way that Jesus acted towards the crowds and towards his disciples. The crowds and the disciples, they were not quick to learn. You know how it is when you're trying to bring people along and they just are not picking up what you're throwing down and you can get so frustrated and impatient. That's not how Jesus was. He was patient with them. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 says this, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And I see that with you towards me. I see this, like I'm, I'm thinking about you, and one of the thoughts that just came to my mind while I was working through this is, you welcomed me and my family in when we were in our 20s, and Everybody in their 20s thinks they know everything, and then they get to their 30s, and then they start having second thoughts, and by the time they get to their 40s, they know they don't know everything. And you have been a kind, patient congregation with me, and I thank you for that. Fifth, there's kindness. The fifth fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Generosity towards others, especially when they're not loving in return generosity towards others, especially when they are not loving in return. Kindness, we see this just in the gospel. It was the kindness of Jesus when people were putting him on the cross 
that he prayed to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That was kindness. And so Ephesians 4 verse 32 says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake forgave you. This is a command for us. Where do I see kindness in the life of our church? I see kindness in our musicians. Every Sunday morning, they are willing to give of themselves even if there's nothing given in return. They don't get paid for these things. And week after week, the sound booth and the text back there with the audiovisual, they show up week after week, sometimes coming in as early as seven o'clock in the morning, getting things just connected, put together. And when things go wrong, we notice it, and we might be like, ah, what was going on back there? But when things go right, do they ever get a word of thanks? Not that often. I think about our children's ministry workers that come in faithfully on Sundays and on Wednesdays. It's just kindness to them that they're showing. Sixth is goodness. Sixth fruit is goodness. This is the attitude or demeanor that is biblically pure and decent. An attitude or demeanor that is biblically pure and decent. Where do I see this in Jesus's life? I see it in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets the woman at the well. And this woman did not have a pure reputation, a sinful past. And the disciples were programmed by their culture and societal patterns. But Jesus was able to look past all of that and live past all of those things that society looked at, and he could talk with her with purity and with decency in such a way that drew her out rather than pushed her away. And I think about this, folks. Did this woman have plenty of sin in her past? Yes, she did. Jesus leaned into her with this measure of goodness and just spoke to her. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. So I thought, about, how have I seen this in the life of our church? If Jesus could have turned to that woman and named all of her sins, um, he could have, I should say that. And yet, Jesus was not soft on sin by any means. He was there to point her towards salvation. I think that our church, if I can just say this, hopefully in an encouraging way and in a right way, there are those taboo sins that have been hot topics in our culture that in the past kind of defined a lot of preaching where pastors would get up and have veins popping out of their necks and out of their foreheads condemning that sin. Now, we covered those sins last week, the works of the flesh. Paul says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Are they sin? They are sin. They're absolute sin. No compromise on that. It's sin. And yet what has happened, I think, in a good way is that we have been able to say, like, we're not looking for behavioral reform. There needs to be this demonstration of goodness towards this individual, just as Jesus was demonstrating goodness towards the woman of well, drawing her out and pointing her towards the Savior. And I think that as a church, 
many of you are feeling more comfortable about bringing your friends into a church context in a church setting like this who don't know the Lord, knowing that, one, a pastor or a fellow man is not going to come over, hear the sin, and have veins popping out of his neck condemning the sin. Is there sin? Yes. And yet God and the person of Jesus here is just pointing individuals towards the Lord. I think that's a good demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit with goodness there. Number seven, faithfulness. What's faithfulness? Being loyal or dependent. Being loyal or dependent. This obviously starts with our faithfulness and loyalty to God, but then it also includes our loyalty and faithfulness to others. Jesus was faithful to his heavenly Father. He was faithful to his disciples. Romans chapter two, or Revelation 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto the Lord. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. There's supposed to be a sense of faithfulness here who will be able to teach others also. Um, it's the Christian who is saying, all right, I'm committed to the Lord. I'm following him through the hard challenges. It's the Christian who is saying, I'm demonstrating a sense of loyalty and faithfulness to others who are around me, even if I disagree with things. And again, the thing that popped into my mind or the example that popped into my mind is our pastors. Um, we can have three to four hour meetings every other Tuesday where we're talking about things and there can be sharp disagreement, very clear lines of distinction where we don't agree on everything 100%. And yet we're able to talk through these things in kindness and in goodness with one another. We're able to submit to one another. And when we come out of there, there's no backstabbing. There's a, a faithfulness of saying, hey, we'll submit to one another. We're, we're walking down the same road. We don't have to have a rotten attitude about this. That's a, a display of faithfulness, and I'm thankful to the pastors for having that kind of fruit of the Spirit. Number eight, gentleness. Gentleness. Uh, the quality of not being over-impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The quality of not being over-impressed by a sense of one's self-importance so that we help others so that we help others. Uh, you remember Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We're commanded to demonstrate gentleness. Galatians 6, verse 1, we'll see this next week. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness in a spirit of gentleness. I see this in lives. Um, I won't name the young lady because it might over-embarrass her, but she has some brothers, and this young lady comes alongside of her brothers in a spirit of gentleness regularly and corrects them in order to help them. And I look at that and I say, that's a sharp young lady. She is gentle with her brothers. Um, Mark Dodd, I think you're very, I see the fruit of gentleness in your life and the way that you help our children uh, during the week, 
um, always coming alongside of them at Gospel Project and in these sporting events. I see that in the lives of many of the ministry workers who are just gentle with our young people. It's an encouragement to see. Uh, Self-control. Self-control. Here's the ninth and last one. This is the practice of restraint over yourself. The practice of restraint over yourself. And 2 Peter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. You might remember the lyrics from the hymn uh, where it says that Jesus, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but he exercised self-control and accomplished salvation for us. Now, every husband in here should say, I see this in my wife. Um, I see it in my wife. I hope you can say that you see it in your wife as well. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so here's what we've just done. We've gone through nine fruits of the Spirit. Would there be more manifestations of the Spirit in our lives? Yes. We could go through other portions of Scripture, but Paul just gives us these nine. The question is, now, we went through that long list. How do we do this? How do we live out love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, peace, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. How do we live all of those out? And, and you'll notice that Paul is saying these are fruits of the Spirit, and I just read at least in eight out of nine of those verses that call for those to be demonstrated in our lives. There are imperatives there now. So how are we supposed to have these fruits that are like coming forth on the branches of our lives. So point number three to the sermon is simply this, the promise of God. The promise of God. When we think about what God has given to us in salvation, we have to take that by faith. And what has God given to us? He has given us freedom. So we go back up to chapter 5, verse 13, which opened this section, and Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then notice what it says down in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ, those who have this freedom now, are crucifying the flesh with its passions and its desires. There is a freedom, and you have to hear this and receive this by faith. There is a freedom that Christ has won for each person who puts his or her faith in Christ. It's a freedom to put sin to death and then to love or manifest these things that God has just shown us here, the fruits of the Spirit, in the context of relationships. I don't have to be enslaved to who I am. I don't have to be enslaved to anger. I don't have to be enslaved to greed. I don't have to be enslaved to believing lies. Christ has come along and he said, I've set you free from all of that. There is a freedom that the believer has. So you can think of someone who's been addicted to cocaine. If they're in the midst of their addiction to cocaine, they cannot think right. In fact, they are just lured back over and over again to crack. The one who has gone through rehab now has a freedom. 
they have a freedom to either go to cocaine or they have a freedom to walk away from cocaine and say, no, I'm not touching that stuff again. There's new freedom for them. The person who is not in Christ does not have that freedom. As Christians, here's what Paul is saying. You do have this freedom. You have this freedom to not live that way. You don't have to go back to the works of the flesh that we read about last week, the enmity, the divisions, the strife, all of those fits or outbursts of anger. You don't have to live that way because Christ has set you free. You say, okay, Christ has set me free, but still I'm looking for those things to come up from within and manifest themselves on the branches of my life. And so when Paul speaks of this here in verse 24 or verse 22, he says, this is the fruit, not of you, but it is the fruit of whom? It's the fruit of the Spirit. So throughout Galatians, Paul has been saying, hey, the promised Holy Spirit is given to those who believe in Christ. The promised Holy Spirit will be received by those who believe in Christ. The Spirit is within you. And you go through this section here and all the way through chapter 6, verse 10, and you see Spirit, 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 Spirit. And what Paul wants you to know is that this life of freedom is not a life where you live on your own. This life of freedom is a life in which God indwells you now. The Spirit who led Jesus now indwells you and enables you to live this out. So if we think of ourselves as the branches that are going to bear fruit out here, the branch can't just say, it's all about me to bear this fruit. The branch is out here saying, I need the trunk, I need the vine to be giving me the nutrients and the power in order to bear this fruit out here. And what Paul is saying here is, yes, you have the Spirit of God who is enabling you and empowering you to do so. The command to bear these fruits is not a contradiction to the gift of the Spirit who's in you. This is one of those tensions where Paul can say, now, bear these fruits. Live these fruits out in your life. How? Why? Because you have been set free and you do have the Spirit within you. So for every Christian in here, we can look at these nine fruits of the Spirit and say, hey, be loving, be joyful, be peaceful, be kind, be patient. And keep going down through the list and we can say, yes, I'm going to step into that, but I know that I'm not going to do this on my own. The Bible tells me that it's going to be the Spirit who's going to empower and enable me to do so. So when you look at your life coming up this week, you might be looking at Monday morning. And you might be saying, I have to go into that meeting with that individual, and I know that they want to tear me apart. And you can look to yourself and say, man, I've got to conjure this up in my own strength. Or you can say, no, I've just read Galatians 5 this last week. I know that Christ has set me free from anger. I don't have to be full of, of any kind of enmity towards that person. I can step into that meeting tomorrow and trust that the Spirit of God is going to meet me there to love that individual. Some of you are in the tensions of a marriage right now that just feels like there's no hope there. Here's what God's Word says. God's Word says you can go into that marriage because you have the Spirit who is in you and no matter what they do, they might fly the coop. That's not on you. They might fly the coop, 
But what you can do is when I'm there, I am set free. I don't have to be a slave to anger. I don't have to be a slave to bitterness. I don't have to be a slave to things that happened in the past. What I can do is I can live by the Spirit and I can love this individual. I can love my spouse. You see, this is the promise that God has given to us. There is hope. There is biblical hope for every relationship. So that in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, which we do, now let us also keep in step by the Spirit each step of the way. We're saying, okay, God, I'm dependent upon you. Life is filled with hard relationships. And Christian, I just want to say, don't give up. Live by the Spirit. And when you do, he will enable you to be faithful to Jesus in each of those moments. Believe God's word. Take those commands and say, yes, I will follow you, Lord. And trust the Spirit to produce those fruits in you. The hope for relationships is a real hope. It's a confident hope because of what God's done. He's given us his spirit this week, and we're going to trust him to produce those fruits. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the kindness that you've given and shown to us. We have to lay hold of these truths by faith now and live by them. I pray that you would settle them in our hearts in such a way where you get the honor and you get the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.